Lord's put a message on my heart today on repentance. Repentance. Usually when we hear about repentance, what do we think of? Saving the lost. Lost people. Something they need to do. You people out there need to repent. Those people. I, I, I've been in service, I mean, most of my life, I, my, my mama carried me, to, all of my life carried me to church, and I've been to so many services, and there's so much targeting those people, what they need to do. And I'm looking just abstractly out the door, because if I do that then we're not culpable. There's no responsibility on us. We don't have to change. We don't have to do anything. It's them and they're not interested and they don't want God anymore and they don't want truth anymore and the world's all going down and we're not responsible for any of it. But is that what Scripture teaches? What does Scripture teach about repentance? That's what is on my heart today. And I'll just tell you some of the thoughts. Uh, Repentance or a life of repentance. I'll talk about repentance and routine and repentance and renewal. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You might have already recognized, but this this is the text we want to take from chapter 7, verse 10. I'm going to start there. We might read the rest of the chapter or might not. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. I've heard that verse preached many times. And every time I can think of hearing it preached, it was targeted at lost sinners who need to repent so they can be saved. And it's true. If you don't know the Lord, I hope that you will repent so you can be saved. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that is only possible through repentance. But I want you to understand that Paul is not talking to lost people. Say, well, how do you know that? Well, let's look at who Paul's audience is before we go any further. When we study Scripture to prove Scripture with Scripture, the best way you do that is to look at what Scripture says. And so, this is a letter written by Paul to a particular group of people identified as a church in a particular location. We see that in the first verse of the first chapter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth. He's writing to the church at Corinth and to all the saints which are in all Achaia, this region. What are saints? Saved people. The Greek word is hagios, holy ones. That's what it literally means. He says, I'm writing to the church and to the holy ones of God. That's his audience. And then in the beginning of chapter 7, we see even more clearly that his audience is the redeemed of God. Chapter 7, verse 1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is not advice to lost people. That is advice to the church of God. To all the saints all around. And this message today is for us who are members at Hendersonville. This church. It is also for all the saints all around who might hear this message. Every one of us. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want to make it very clear. This message is about 
the, the necessity and the beautiful benefits when the people of God repent. And it's, I think, a tool of the enemy that so many professing Christians who, who believe in old-time heartfelt salvation, the last time they truly, unconditionally surrendered in repentance was the day they were saved. The rest of the time it's been half-hearted, sort of following the Lord. Does that apply to any of us? You don't raise your hand, but just search your heart and say, Lord, show me what part of this message applies to us. Today, So this is clearly two Christians to a, a church, a particular church in a particular location. He says godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. Now that language is a little bit funny, so let's look at a couple other translations. He says godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Yeah. Have any of you ever been sorry you were sorry? Yes, I have. Have you ever had an, a, a big emotional reaction to something and then you kick yourself later and say, boy, that, that wasn't very smart? Or you, 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 you all that dated when you were young, you, you know, you, you heartbreak over your first puppy love, and, and then you look back and say, that was all silly. What Paul is saying is that's a kind of sorrow that you repent of later, that you're sorry about later, that you kind of wish it never happened. But godly sorrow, you never wish you didn't go through it. Godly sorrow happens and it produces salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Do you know that? The goal, and remember that in this message and in your lives, the goal is not to feel sorrowful. we got a whole world of people, a whole generation right now that just feel sorry for themselves all the time. They're always depressed, always discouraged. The world's against them. And I'm not criticizing you if you've had a hard time. We all go through hard times. But what I'm saying is, where is your focus? And is that the kind of sorrow that's producing lasting change or is it just perpetuating how hard your life is? Careful what kind of sorrow you allow to enter into your heart. Godly sorrow is good for you. Worldly sorrow is not good for you. Be careful. By the way, I don't think the world's much worse than it was 50 years ago. You know why we think it is? Y'all might not agree with that because I have people tell me all the time that the Lord's coming back tomorrow and nothing matters. It's all winding down. But evil has been doing what evil has done all along. I mean, you read the Old Testament. It's like an R-rated movie. You see the evil... Those people, the children of Israel, did some evil that we can't conceive of. So I'm not sure that the world has gotten so much worse recently. I think we're just more connected to it, more aware. We didn't used to know what's happening in Ukraine and Pakistan and all these countries constantly, and it's always there, and it's always... Why am I talking about that? Because that's the sorrow of the world. Be careful what you expose yourself to. And I didn't plan on saying any of this, but it's it's in my heart... One of the biggest tools the enemy has to use against us right now in this world is how we use technology. And I've said this many times. Technology itself is not evil. I'm broadcasting on a cell phone. But be careful. You can't be distracted all the time and have a repentant life and peace and serve the Lord. You can't do it. I can't do it. I can't. 
And I just assume most people are like I am. These things are intentionally addictive because they were designed for that purpose. And I don't think the app developers are necessarily evil. They're just out to get money. They, They know the more clicks, the longer you spend, the more they get paid. But you know who is evil? The enemy, Satan. And he's in charge of everything that distracts us from God. He's the grand conspirator. I want you to see one more way this is translated. The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience is the kind that leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Do you know some of your sorrow will drive you into more sin? Any of you emotional eaters? Have any of, well, I didn't expect people to raise hands. I love honest people. <laughs> I love honest people. Don't raise your hand on this, but any of you ever drank to, to numb your problems? Any of you smoke for a distraction? Any of you watch pornography to feel better temporarily for a distraction? Say, preacher, you can't mention that in public. Why not? There's a slogan, it's the new drug. It's an epidemic. You have to be careful what you allow your sorrow to drive you into. I have to be careful what I allow my sorrow to drive me into. And I feel like it's easy to pick on something like an eating um, addiction. That's, you can talk about that. People don't want you to talk about other addictions. But think about it as a parallel. What do we allow ourselves to be consumed by because of worldly sorrow? Loneliness, despair, distraction, discouragement. I'm just going to put some things in me. I'll let you be honest in your own hearts and tell yourself through God what the things are. What things do you struggle with? I know what I struggle with. You want to be honest? Don't tell me, but, but admit it to yourself. You know where your weaknesses are. You know what triggers it. You get lonely. This week has been a bad week for people. They've been stuck at home. Now, some people enjoyed it. Depends on your temperament. Some of you, it's been paradise. I didn't have to see anybody. <laughs> Be aware. And I want to read this again because this, trans- this translation of it is so clear. The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. I might mention this part more later, but I just want to go ahead and say, feeling sorry is not necessarily repentance. Worldly sorrow lacks repentance. You ever known people or had conversations? They're not sorry they did it. They're sorry they got caught. I've been through some situations in in relationships and in church that are heavy and hard. And you can always tell an unrepentant person because they're sorry they got caught. They're sorry for the inconvenience that their deeds were exposed. They're not sorry they did it. They're not sorry for the hurt they caused. Godly sorrow is what we're looking for, brothers and sisters. Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. We're going to get into more say, well, I already have salvation, do you? 
This is talking about more than your ticket to heaven. You know what salvation is? I'll explain it later, but cue that in your mind. So again, to, to reiterate, Paul's writing to save people. He's writing to a church. He's writing to the saints and holy ones. And I want to tell you clearly, saints, that's a word we don't use much anymore, but I'm using it because that's what Scripture uses. Saints, the holy ones. Hey, beautiful. Hi. The called out of God. What's up? Saints need repentance just as much as sinners. You know, maybe more. I mean, sinners, listen, you're, you're, your life's broken and hopeless, and on some level you realize it. And there's a balm, and there's a healing, and there's a hope. The problem with, with saved people is they start to get religious, and there starts to be some self-justification, and, and all of us are susceptible to this. All of us. We start to feel like we did something. We start to feel like that doesn't apply to me because God has rescued us and He has shown us mercy. And we forget that His mercy is because of His heart, not our actions. You know, there's, in Scripture we see this pattern. The Israelites, they were warned by the prophet. He said, don't think that the Lord drove out your enemies because of your righteousness. He did it for His own namesake. Amen. Nothing of yourselves. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the righteousness and the mercy of God. It's, it's not of works, lest any of us should boast. And yet religion has this corrosive capacity to make us all think we're better than we are. You might feel a little bit, I made it, I drove over some snow and ice and I made it, I feel a little bit good. Be careful. All pride is dangerous. All pride's dangerous. Saints need repentance just as much as sinners. And we, we use verses like this, as I already said. We, we tell sinners to repent. We tell them they need godly sorrow. We tell them to let go of their pride and humble themselves before God. We tell them to seek the Lord while He may be found. But all of these things apply to the redeemed as well. The moment of salvation, that time that you seek the Lord when He's dealing with you and you surrender, you repent, you trust Him, you put your faith in Him and He gives you new life and you become a new person, that is only the beginning. That's supposed to be the first day of the rest of your life. That's supposed to begin a life of continual repentance. That moment of repentance is supposed to begin a pattern of repentance. And instead, we substitute true repentance with religious activity. All of us. And I'm not being mean. Like, don't, it's not going to help to beat yourself over your head and I'm such a horrible person. No, get your focus on Jesus. Saints must repent. And this is who Paul's talking to again. The gospel call to unconverted sinners is simple repent or you're perish. Repent. That's what John the Baptist preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus preached. Repent. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. That's the call to unconverted sinners. But the sincere child of God, I mean, you put that word there on purpose, the sincere child of God lives in a continual state of repentance. Amen. Yes. Not a continual state of religious activity. Yes. They're not the same thing. 
You say, well, are you against religion? I'm against any religion that distracts from Jesus. Amen. Jesus was the enemy of dead religion. And it doesn't mean some of our routines can't be God-honoring and God-sanctioned and God-inspired. But nothing we do has eternal value unless the Holy Spirit is in it. And I, we, we say that, but I'm, I actually mean it. I really mean it. The sincere child of God lives in a continual state of repentance. They recognize everything of the flesh is an interruption of true spiritual life. And must be repented of. Self-sufficiency, all forms of pride, malice, evil, gossip. I, I think it's so interesting that Scripture lists things like murder in the same sentence with things like gossip. Yeah. Most of us, as far as I know, there aren't any murderers here in the technical sense. But how many of us have murdered in our hearts? I have. Gasp, you shouldn't say that. I could tell you about it. God protected me from it. I don't say that lightly. <laughs> this is real, people. We're talking about real life. And there's a reason, again, that gossip and murder is mentioned in the same sentence. In some way, it's just as bad because it separates you from God and it makes you think you don't need repentance. What is repentance? Before we go any further, let's give a little definition. If you look it up, it's the Greek word metanoia. And the, the, the lexicon says it's a change of mind. And I have found that a woefully insufficient De definition. <laughs> a change of mind. Well, goodness gracious. We change our minds all the time. My little girl changes her mind constantly. Is that repenting? No, it's not. We're talking about a change of that part of, we don't even have a word for it, but that thing that we call mind or that driving force inside of you. We're talking about a sincere and lasting change that changes your whole life. And you know if you've experienced it, that kind of change isn't possible in your mind. It has to come from a deeper place. Amen. Something outside of you has to change what's inside of you. And then that something outside of you comes inside of you and lives inside of you. The something we're talking about is the Holy Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. It's not possible to change your mind in this sense of repentance without His help. And it comes from a word... Uh, which means, by definition again, to change one's mind for the better, heartily to amend with abhorrence of one's past sins. So, religious people read definitions like this, and they come up with things to try to get you to change your mind or change your behavior. When I was in college, the big uh, religious group on campus had, it was either Tuesday or Thursday night, it was Tuesday night. They had a service on Tuesday night, and you know what they called it? They called it 180. Because the goal was to get you to change your mind. Do a 180. I'm going this way, now I'm going this way. Well, guess what? You go right back that way. Yeah. Changing your mind's not enough. So what do you, what do you, that's what the definition is. Yeah, but, but it, we're talking about something deeper than words. Yeah. So I, I want us to understand what repentance really is in essence. Not definitionally, definitionally or or just theologically, I want us to understand it practically. What's repentance really? What does it look like? What does true repentance produce? 
Because repentance, practically, it's so much more than simply changing direction. How many times are you going to do a 180? And what does it really do? And that's why I'm not into rededicating your life to Jesus and resolves and confirmations. And I mean, I'm not criticizing if you've done something like that, but I'm saying any change that's rooted in our own resolve, our own resolution, our own self-determination, we talked about that in Sunday school, if it's rooted in your own self-determination, it's not going to last. If it would, none of us would be overweight. Because your self-determination would have carried through and you never would have eaten that chip, cracker, candy, popsicle, Coke, whatever it is, right? And now apply that to the dirtier sins that we don't talk about in public. If your self-determination was enough, you never would have done those things either. We need something more than a 180. We need something more than a decision. Because true repentance is deeper than resolve or dedication or anything else. And at the heart of true repentance is a deep, sorrowful understanding. I want you to get this. It's a deep, sorrowful understanding, a personal conviction and certainty that I have separated myself from God through my behavior. My willful behavior has put a separation between, he, between Him and me, and I'm guilty. And I deserve whatever happens. I'm guilty. Say, I thought you preach all the time. There's therefore now no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. But you still have to answer for your behavior. And you just look at the Old Testament, look at King David, the psalmist, look at uh, many of the prophets, the way they talked about their relationship with God. That's exactly how they talked. I have separated myself from you. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. That's what David said. Even when he repented or uh, sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, and if, if you don't quickly recall that story, David um, committed adultery, conspiracy to murder. He had a man killed and he stole his wife. And then he came to God and said, I've sinned against you alone. It doesn't mean there wasn't wrong committed against those people. David understood what I did is so much deeper than anything in human relations. I have sinned against God Almighty. And there's consequences that have still not gone away. Did God forgive him? Yes. Did he uh, wash away the effects of his decision? Nope. See, when David said that the way he did, he was expressing what repentance really is. Repentance for a child of God. He was saved. He was saved and he adultered and murdered. He was saved. He didn't stop being saved. He wasn't just sorry he got caught. He was going through the motions until the prophet came to him, told him this story about a rich man stealing a poor man's one lamb. And David said... We'll punish him. And then the prophet says, you're the man. And that crushed him. Yes. Brothers and sisters, I've been preaching about this. It's been in my heart. Don't be afraid to tell the truth. Because the truth of God brought the king to his knees. The simple truth. You're the man. You're the man. 
Now, David could have bucked up and been defensive and said, I'm the king, I'm justified. He could have come up with excuses. He didn't. He allowed the truth of God to crush him, bring him to his knees, and to bring his heart into a posture that he said, what I already quoted, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. In other words, David is saying, against you and you alone have I sinned, I've done what is evil, you will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. The heart of repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, it's saying, I was wrong. And have you noticed in our culture, it's not hard to admit you're a sinner. Nobody cares about that anymore. I'm a sinner and I'm proud of it. They wear it like a badge. You know what's hard to admit? I was wrong. And that's how you know the difference in a repentant, heartfelt apology and one of these, sorry, I got caught apologies. You ever heard these or said these yourselves? Sorry you got your feelings hurt. Sorry you got your feelings hurt. Sorry you didn't like what I said. I'm guilty of some of these phrases sometimes. It doesn't make it light. It, it matters. You, it's so, you can say sorry, but to say, let's use the marriage relationship because that's where the vulnerability is. Honey, I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. I'm sorry. Doesn't that feel... I'm just saying it like that. There's tears in my eyes. I mean, it feels different. One is like, sorry for the situation. The other is, sorry for who I am. I'm a mess. Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a land of people with unclean lips. That's what Isaiah said. That's right. I'm a mess. That's a whole lot different than sorry for what happened. And so when David repented, he said, you'll be justified in whatever you do. Lord, I have sinned, and anything you say in response to it is just. I lay myself at your mercy. I deserve whatever happens. There's an awareness in true repentance. And I'm still talking to saved people. Well, I don't, we, we just, we, we got saved and then sort of ducked all this stuff in our religious culture. It's not supposed to be that way. You can't get by. You can't get by with doing whatever you want. I can't get by with doing whatever I want. And to have this attitude that I'm somehow okay because I did some good stuff, it doesn't work that way. Jesus addressed that in his story about the Pharisee and the publican in the temple. Remember that? Two men went down to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that is the esteemed religious leader of the time. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee prayed thus within himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, or even like this guy right here. You ever looked at somebody... Don't tell me, but be honest in your heart. You ever looked at somebody and said, at least I'm not as bad as that guy? You ever felt that way, even if you didn't say it out loud? We tend to do that with dirty sins. We don't do that with the acceptable sins. You know, lack of self-control is sin, whatever category it's in, whether the culture accepts it or not. And it separates us from God. And Jesus... 
he continued, he said, the man that prayed that way, the Pharisee, I, I, I give tithes of everything I receive. I do all the things. I fast. I, I'm the religious paragon of virtue. I do everything religious that I should. And then the publican said, he couldn't even lift up his head to, to heaven, beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that man went down to his house justified. So, well, I was a lost man who got saved. Maybe. But that is the pattern of conduct for all saved people to come to God. Don't forget, friends, we're requesting an audience with the king when we pray. And it's not no big deal. Sometimes the mercy of Jesus makes us regard the harsher perceptive attributes of God as if they're no big deal, like He's, he's just going to protect us. From, no, God is still God. Amen. He hasn't changed. Amen. I'm not saying you should walk around terrified of Him, but Scripture does teach we should have the fear of the Lord. Amen. That's the beginning of, of wisdom. Psalm 106 gives us another example of how the saints of God prayed. He said, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. That's a hard one for me and probably for you. We tend to look at the evil around us and get mad at it in our culture. There's stuff going on right now in Hendersonville. Or even, quote, our churches. You ever talk about our churches and get frustrated with things that are wrong and think, I'm glad I'm not that. Sometimes I have some relief that things are going well here. And by well, I mean the Lord is meeting with us and helping us. And there's not as much emotionalism and not as much contention. And it, things are going pretty well. But you know what my heart should say? God, we have sinned. We, my brothers and sisters and me, we've sinned. That's how the psalmist prayed. We've sinned with our fathers. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. Say, is there collective guilt to some degree? Not Maybe not guilt, but there should be a posture of your heart that even if you didn't do it, sin is so bad that we need to be interceding on their behalf Amen. as if it were us. I want us to look at how Daniel prayed. Now, we know Daniel and his buddies, his three friends, were upheld as righteous servants of God they were godly in the land of Babylon. And David, or Daniel prayed in a way. Let's just listen to, to this passage, Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years... In other words, David said, I spent time in the Word of God. I received revelation of truth. Daniel didn't do any of those things. He didn't do any of that stuff he read about. He was faithful. And yet, this is how he affected his heart. How his heart was affected when he read it. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. He confessed for sins he didn't personally commit. 
He prayed and lost sleep and fasted for sins he didn't personally commit. I'm not saying he was responsible for their sins. I'm saying the posture of his heart was humble and tender enough that he was broken by the sins around him. That's how our heart should feel. That's what repentance does in a child of God. It makes us stop regarding the people out there as the people out there and makes us interact with them as that could be me. In fact, that is me, except for the grace of God. And then he says this, we have sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, we've turned aside from your commandments and rules, we haven't listened to your servants, the prophets. Listen, none of that applies to Daniel. He has listened to the servants, the prophets. He has acted faithfully. He has stood. He didn't eat the king's food. He didn't wear or or get corrupted by the king's culture. He didn't subject him. He remained righteous. And yet his heart, the posture of his heart, lumps himself in part and parcel with his people. Listen, church, you can't be part of a body and not be affected by the body. And it doesn't help other body parts who are struggling to have competition with those body parts. What helps those messed up body parts is to be like Daniel and say, Father, the body is broken. Heal us. Not, man, I sure am a strong thumb. I don't care about the right foot over there. Sure is a messed up right foot. Well, guess what? If the foot can't get around, you can't take your thumb where it needs to be and do what it needs to do. We're all interconnected and in this church, but also just God's people. We should be broken. This is repentance, but we should be broken by the sins in our culture. Yes. I'm not saying we shouldn't stand against it and fight against it. We should. And there's, th- there's things that are happening that if it comes to our front doorstep, I think we should use physical violence to stop it if we have to. That's my opinion. And we could talk about it. But the posture of our heart should be, Lord, this land has sinned. Hendersonville is full of sinful people. The United States is full of sinful people. God, have mercy on us. That should be our heart's posture. Not, glad I'm right and all those people are wrong. Do you see the difference? And do you see how easy it is to get caught up in these tribal factions? And then have self-justification through it when none of us are righteous. No, not one. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's Scripture. Now, not only does Daniel, although he's individually innocent of these things he's praying for, not only does he take responsibility and pray for them, he also expresses, again, the purest heart of repentance, which is, Eighth verse, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. We're guilty. We're guilty. We deserve what happens. We deserve this captivity. We're guilty. We're guilty. See, when you have a heart of repentance, it corrects that false, that false dichotomy, that, that broken understanding where one of the big problems people have with God is how he can he do mean things to good people. How can bad things happen to good people? This isn't fair. When you understand you're guilty, it changes all of that. 
I'm not talking to sinners. I'm talking to the saints of God. He says, us, O Lord, belongs our open shame. We've sinned, we and our fathers. When's the last time, just be honest, when's the last time you prayed like that? Broken for the sins of the people around you. I pray the Lord would let this break us. Not so we'll walk around downcast, downtrodden, something like that, but so that in that, God will draw us into His presence. See, that's what happened with Daniel. When you read the rest of this chapter, he's praying in an honest state of repentant, desperate prayer. And that's when God gives him a revelation from Gabriel. You want answers from God? Daniel, Brother Daniel mentioned he's been praying for direction. I've been praying for direction, but if I'm honest, I've been worrying more than I've been praying. i got decisions I need to make in my life, too. Maybe some of y'all do. Have we really, really, really prayed about it? I tell you, when you pray sincerely, I, I put a post on Facebook the other day, a quote I heard somewhere, it said, When the ones close to you are healthy and safe, Everything matters. And when they're not, nothing else matters. Do you understand what that's saying? My little girl, was, she was pretty sick a couple weeks ago. I mean, you know, laying on your chest and moaning. High fever, cough, cry. Pitiful. And I told somebody, I feel like Merritt and I spent three days begging God <laughs> to heal her. And then the next day praising Him that He had. That's real prayer. You know what? All the stuff I worry about, what I should do career-wise, where I'm going to get a next paycheck. Y'all know I have no idea when or how I'm going to get paid. I worry about that. I worry about it. And I wasn't worried about it then. It wasn't in my mind at all. It didn't matter anymore because only one thing mattered. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. When we get to the place that our hearts are truly repentant, we can pray with a singleness of focus where nothing else matters except what we're petitioning God for, except His will, just in that moment. That's what He wants from us. And not just what He wants, but that's what's good for us. I want to tell you that. Here's just some final notes on the idea of repentance and, and the children of God. Very simply, very clearly, brothers and sisters, repentance is good for you. Amen. Repentance is good for you. It might not feel comfortable, but if you're a child of God, you ought to get comfortable repenting. Because you can't walk with God without a repentant heart. That's different than walking around with your head down, beating yourself up. I'm never good enough. Can't do any. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. Talking about repenting. It's different. You're not going to win any victories over sin apart from sincere and honest repentance. And let's be real. Let's be real for a minute. We're three weeks into the new year. A lot of people make New Year's resolutions. Some of you are old enough and cynical enough that you stopped doing that because you know how many times you failed at your own resolution, so now you don't do it at all. 
Some of you have lived long enough that you know your resolve is not enough. You know, I, I, made, I didn't make resolutions, but I, I had some goals this year. I already failed at them. Now, here, here, here's the thing. They weren't big goals. I'll tell you what one of them was. One of my goals was to write a note or card to someone every day. How long that takes? Actually writing maybe five minutes. I did it real good for about five days. And then my little girl got sick. Then I got sick. Then it snowed in and, you know, then I got, then the habit's gone. The habit never got formed. Now, I'm giving you an example of something that doesn't feel like a big deal, but there's things you've resolved in your heart that are big deals that you weren't able to perform. Lord, I'm not going to gossip anymore. I'm not going to worry anymore. I'm not going to overeat anymore. I'm not going to smoke anymore. What Mark Twain say is quitting smoking is the easiest thing I've ever done. I've done it 170 times. Now we can chuckle, but these, these things are real. Listen, sin is like a hook. It gets in you. It's a vice of the enemy, and every single one of us are susceptible. I'm not just talking about those societally dirty sins. I'm talking about sin. Everything that produces an unrepentant heart. It's dangerous. And we're not going to win any victories over sin apart from sincere and honest repentance. Brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with something that you know you shouldn't be struggling with, maybe it's something that you don't feel... that You, you feel helpless in. You didn't cause it. Anxiety and depression. This generation, I say that with no criticism whatsoever. People are struggling with depression and with anxiety, and in many cases, they didn't do anything intentionally to cause it. It's not because they abused anybody or hurt anybody. or It's just, there is a, it's in the air, man. It's like, I don't know how else to describe it. This is an anxious time we live in. It's a, it, there's so much noise. God didn't make us to have constant input. You have to have a break. You have to have a break from it. And it's not possible to repent if there's so much noise and you're not going to have any, any break from it without repentance. It all it goes hand in hand. Repentance, one of the beautiful things for a child of God, repentance produces a tender and pliable heart. And only a tender and pliable heart can be used and molded by God. God can't use you if you're not repentant. And some, I have some church people, they feel like they don't have anything to repent of. I'll tell you a situation. I, I don't know if I should mention it. I guess I will. I had to bring somebody up on charges one time. We excluded him. He did some terrible things. Infidelity with more than one person on more than one occasion for a long time. Greed and, and uh, violence and all sorts of bad stuff. You know what he said? Me and God are fine. That's exactly what he said. Some of y'all remember that. <laughs> That's what an unrepentant heart does. Me and God are fine. That's scary. You know what the opposite of that is? What one of my dear brothers in Guatemala went down there. It's been a decade now. 
And he talked, we were talking about a, a missionary who had fallen into terrible sin. And this old man, saint of God, his family had been harmed by this missionary. He had every reason to be bitter. And he said, Brother Josh, if you see that man, please tell him I love him and I forgive him. What happened to him could happen to me. That's a repentant heart. That's the difference. Repentance and humility. The point of that story, my brother in Guatemala, repentance and humility are linked. You can't repent with a proud heart. If your heart says, we're fine, me and God are fine. Or maybe you wouldn't say it that way, but maybe you say, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I haven't done anything bad lately. It's hard to repent with that posture, brothers and sisters. I, 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 let me be as clear as I can. Every single person here has reason to go to God in absolute brokenness and repent. Amen. No matter how good you've been today. Amen. Pray like Daniel prayed. We've sinned, we and our fathers. A few more practical points. You have to be humbled to, to truly repent. You have to be humbled. That's why sometimes I'll be talking to people and they'll say, I've gotten to the end of my rope or whatever phrase, you know, different phrases. Or I just don't even know if I can trust my own judgment anymore. Or I just, I just can't keep going. And I say, good. Good. Not because I don't care. But because God is finally stripping away your illusion of, of self-sufficiency. You, you never could do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. I'm a self-willed person. Let me tell you how I'm, how I'm wired. When I was a kid, I loved basketball so much. I tore my ligaments. I was on crutches for over a month in my ankle. And I'm shooting free throws on one leg in the rain. That's how self-determined I am. You know how much I can do for God with that self-determination? Not a single thing. Nothing. Any brokenness I've had in my life, I look back on and I see the mercy of God in stripping away my own illusion of control. It doesn't feel good in the moment. Some of you who are going through struggles, it doesn't feel good in the moment. But you look back on it and you say, God was being merciful. He had to break me enough that I could repent. I've got a few more minutes if you could bear with me. I think it'll be worth it. You've got to be humbled enough to repent, and true repentance produces an environment of humility and an environment of reality. True repentance shows you the reality of who you are and who God is and who the people around you are. And repentance, as I alluded to a moment ago, it's difficult when you're operating in your own strength. And that itself is a thing to be repented of. See, sometimes the things that separate us from God are not manifest sins. Sometimes they're things that in the right context are very good. Tenacity is a good thing. Dependability is a good thing. Reliability is a good thing. But if you start to rely on your own reliability instead of the sufficiency of Christ, it's no longer a good thing. And He'll strip it from you. He will. I get chills telling you He will. And it's His mercy when He does. Because you can't repent in the posture of self-reliance.
Can't do it. It's impossible to truly repent in the presence of pride. That's what self-reliance is. I can do it. I don't. Maybe this part of the message is just for me. I need to be. Rem- I can do it. No, Paul said I can do all things through Christ. Amen. And he said, "O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death?" He said, "I can't do anything I want to do without His help." I'm just paraphrasing it for you, but that's how it is. This is why, by the way, concerning pride, this is why the Lord hates a proud look. Because a proud look is the outward manifestation of a proud heart. And a proud heart cannot submit to God. Brothers and sisters, if I could tell our, ch- our churches, there again, if I could tell our churches one thing, I'd t- beware of pride. Beware of pride. You can be so right, you're wrong. You can. You can be so right, you lose your first love. You can be so right, you stop repenting. And you rest in being right. You know what Jesus told those people who were resting in their heritage and they're being right? He said, think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. I could raise up children out of these stones. Wow. He didn't say I can go get some Gentiles to serve me. He said I can go get some rocks to serve me. That's what Jesus said. Next time you think that (laughs) you're the only right one or you're important or something... Jesus said, I can replace you with some rocks if I need to. I didn't make that up. And I think he literally meant it. I mean, God made Adam out of dirt. Don't you think the Son of God could make somebody out of a rock if he wanted to? A few more notes. Let me talk about sin for a minute. So you already talked about sin. Well, I'm going to make you uncomfortable, I guess. That's a good thing. Some of you have struggled with sin. I don't know particular things. I'm not talking about anything anybody told me. I'm talking about what's in my heart and what I've experienced, my own self. And I guess y'all are human and you have similar struggles. I heard a quote, you don't rise to meet your goals, you fall to the level of your habits. That's why resolutions don't work. That's why promising yourself you'll never do it again doesn't work. What are your habits? See, a repentant life produces daily habits to help us walk with God. And David gave us that example. He talked about in the morning. I mean, he talked about this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He said in the night, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, David, who fell into some grievous sin, recognized the only way I can keep from it, the only way I can maintain a repentant heart is to meditate on the Lord when I wake up and when I go to bed as a habit, a routine. Whether I feel like it or not, y'all listen to me carefully. How do you start your day? I'm talking to myself too. What's the first thing you do? Do you jump right into putting out fires? Or, or maybe it's not even real fires. It's just Facebook. Maybe check on who needs something. Check on what's going on. Is that the first thing you do? Or do you meditate on God and His goodness and Lord Jesus, direct my day? Amen. What do you do? What do you do when you go to bed? You know what I do a lot of times? I'll just be honest. A lot of time, my brain, it goes, 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 goes. And if I don't turn it off by about 6 o'clock, it doesn't stop. I can't sleep. 
And so I, I justify, I'll just watch some stupid show that's going to distract me. You know what a bad, I do that. And I'm saying, I'm saying it publicly because y'all have got things you're struggling with that maybe you need to admit to yourself. That's a problem that I justify because I have a personal struggle. You know what I should do? You know what I would have had to do 20 years ago? Sit there in silence. <laughs> there wasn't a Netflix to distract me. I don't have Netflix, but it's, it's Amazon Prime. I'm a little better. It's not, you know, Amazon Prime is useful. Not Net, I don't watch Netflix. I don't have cable. We don't have cable. We don't watch TV. Man, I watch a lot of Amazon Prime on my laptop. Why? Because I have a struggle that I need to submit to the Lord. I'm not saying this to be funny. David said, I meditate on you in the night. What are your daily habits like, brothers and sisters? We live in a time where everybody's talking about how hard everything is. Young people, how are they ever going to buy a house? I'm in real estate, so I, I mean, it, how are they? I don't know. You starter home here is $350,000, and a lot of these kids are making $30,000 a year. It's numerically impossible. It's true. And yet, and yet, every generation has had difficulties that they face. So I want to ask you, what are you focused on? And what are you going to do about it? This is all, say, I thought you were talking about repentance. I am. Because repentance aligns your eyes in the right way to look at Jesus. What are your daily habits like? Are you developing your resistance muscle? You know all this distraction? I lament all the social media distraction. It's bad. It's an opportunity, though, in truth, to develop your resistance muscle. Not going to do it. Not going to look. Nope, nope, nope. Not going to look at Facebook first thing in the morning. I'm not going to look at it last thing at night. No, I'm not going to read the news first thing in the morning. Can't do it. I don't need to know what's going on in Saudi Arabia. I know what's going on in Hendersonville. What are, you, what are you going to do about the wars in Ukraine and Russia? What are you going to do about it? Other than gossip and get mad and develop political factions. You going to go over there and help them? No. But you can do something about the lonely old lady up the road. Find out about her. Now, I do want to talk about sin for a moment. You don't rise to meet your goals. You follow the level of your habits. If your habits in your life are undisciplined, if you can't control your behavior, you're not going to control your behavior. One area of life bleeds into another area of life. And part of not being caught up in besetting sin is as a habit focusing on the Lord. Then He can help you rely on Him. And then when you mess up, and you will... You don't throw in the, what's the expression, the baby with the bathwater. You don't just give up. You know what? I failed at my goal of writing a, a note every day. But this is only January 21st. I can restart it. Because that's important to me. It feels like it matters. I'm not going to say, oh, man, I failed at my goal. Just give up on it. But that's how the enemy wants us to interact. Or something you're struggling with. You might say, you fall, you mess up, or you, you just it's not going to work. This is why, brothers and sisters, it's unwise to rely on willpower or personal resolve or greater tenacity or determination to produce what can only be produced by the Spirit of God in the life of a child of God who's living a surrendered life. 
I want to be just as clear as like, you ought to read your Bible whether you feel inspired to or not. I should too. We should have a daily habit. We should have a daily, not out of guilt or something, but for our own benefit. We should have a daily habit of looking in God's Word. And I want to, not on your phone, get an actual book because there's too many distractions in there. Some of you still don't agree with that. That's okay. It's between you and God. Maybe I'm not right about that for you. Maybe you should use your iPad Bible. But use use the Word of God every day. Don't rely on willpower. Because the only lasting and reliable defense against sin is to walk with God. And only the people who walk with God are going to have a continual state of repentance. Let me tell you that something that doesn't work. I've noticed this. I, I... I told my wife, when I used to work at the VA, I hung out with all the smokers because they were the only people who went outside, even though I don't smoke. I, I would go and, you know, they had their smoke breaks, and I would get me out in the sunshine. And they would all tell I said, do you like it? I was just so curious. No, I hate it. Does it taste? No, it doesn't taste good. <laughs> Very interesting. It's like the hardest addiction ever. You know what's harder? Digital things. Truly. They've done studies with dopamine and how your brain works. Pornography, social media, it's an even harder addiction. Now, if you struggle with these things, some of you don't even realize you do. Some of you do realize you do. Let me tell you what doesn't work. Resolving, I'm not going to do that anymore, and then keeping track of the number of days that you haven't done it. It does not work. Because then you're focused on the number of days, and then when you slip, you failed. And then you're tempted to just give up the day counting altogether. Let me tell you, give up the day counting. Give it up and rely on Jesus. Rely on Him for your righteousness. Repent when you mess up. You will mess up. Repent. I'm not giving you an excuse to sin. I'm saying you're a sinner. (laughs) Repent. I mean, as soon as something happens that shouldn't, repent and be done with it. Jesus told the woman caught with all the adultery, they wanted to uh, stone her to death. He said, where are your accusers? She said, they're not here. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is not about beating you up over your sins. And if you're doing that, he didn't, that's not from him. Because um, beating yourself up is not going to prevent you from sinning either. Again, that's a, if that would work, all you'd have to do is beat yourself up and nobody would be overweight. Doesn't work. You know the main difference between a good religious person and a person who's truly walking with God? Repentance. The religious person has a life characterized by religious activity. They, like the Pharisees, they they pray to be seen, they give to be seen, they might talk about their prayer closet or their fasting or their religious diets or their prayer list or their latest mission trip or all the things they're doing, their religious busyness, their life's so full of religious resolutions and religious systems. When they talk about my accountability partner, my prayer life, my fasting program, my church activities, what is that drawing attention to? And I've been surrounded by these people my whole life. Maybe I've sometimes been these people. You know what draws attention to? Me. What I'm doing. You know what I want to hear instead of that? You know what I love hearing? (laughs) I was brought low and he helped me. (laughs) 
Oh, you should have seen the mess I was before God found me. <laughs> I love people like that. I, more and more, the older I get, I just don't even like religious people. Jesus didn't either. He, he had some harsh words I've never said to anybody. He said, your father's the devil. <laughs> he could say that. I can't see their hearts. <laughs> Excuse me. A couple more points. I'll be finished. A person who walks with God walks in humility, and that person's life is characterized by repentance. David said, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. We can quote that as missionary Baptists. You know he was talking about himself as a saved person? It's not just about those lost people out there. The Lord is close to the broken-hearted children who realize they're not enough and they're a mess and they need their father. They're the only people he's close to. Only people he's close to is the ones who aren't prideful. I love how Hannah prayed in her prayer of thanksgiving. She said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There's none holy as the Lord. There's none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. And then in the midst of her rejoicing is, is repentance. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by Him actions are weighed. Even joy produces repentance in the heart of a pure child of God. It's beautiful. And I want to tell you, I said I might get to this. Let me dwell on it for a moment. Salvation. The verse we first looked at in the beginning. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. What is this talking about? It's, it's certainly talking about eternal life. But salvation, you know what the word means? You know what salvation is? Deliverance. Deliverance. You're out in the icy road and you get slid off the road in your you know, two-wheel drive truck and some Jeep comes by and pulls you out. That's salvation. It delivered you from the mess you were in. That, that's what the word means. And so when Paul says, godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, he's not only talking about being saved. Salvation is deliverance. Listen to me, saved people. Salvation is deliverance, and this verse is for saved people. Salvation is deliverance. A lifestyle of repentance will deliver you. It will deliver you from fear. A lifestyle of repentance will deliver you from anxiety. I've struggled with anxiety. A lifestyle of repentance will deliver you from depression. I don't know if I've been depressed. I'm wound a little tight for that, but I've been anxious. Some of y'all been depressed. You're not depressed when you're in a lifestyle of repentance. Be honest. You're not. When you're submitted humbly before the Lord, saying, whatever you want, Lord, your will, those things are gone. A lifestyle of repentance will deliver you from bitterness, lust. You want to get over porn problems? Have a lifestyle of repentance. Not more resolve. It'll deliver you from greed, from selfishness, from misguided passions, from unnecessary harshness. A lifestyle of repentance will deliver you from yourself. Yes. And I could go on and on with examples. Through repentance, you can walk in the way everlasting. So let me ask you as we close this message. Maybe we could get a song ready, Brother Allen. As I close this message, do you have a heart of repentance?
Don't answer me, but go home with that question. Go home with that question. Do you have a heart of repentance? Is your heart hungry for the presence of God no matter what it costs your flesh? Do we as a church, do we as God's people have a heart of repentance? Oh, I pray we do. Pray for me that I will. I want that. There's no power from on high without repentance, brothers and sisters. It's all in Him and through Him. I pray that message is a strength to you. If there is anybody listening or here who's not been saved by God's grace and experienced His peace, of course repentance applies to you and you can repent at any time. But this message is for those of us that sometimes forget we still need to repent. God bless you.